Okay, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 through 14. We're going to get to Paul's final words here. Remember now, this whole letter, one of the reasons why this letter is so difficult to understand is, is because Paul is dealing with an underlying issue of credibility with the Corinthian believers. That even though they know him as a spiritual father, they've somehow been listening to these folks who've come in among them and who are whispering and who are uh, making accusations or whatever. They're listening to Paul. And so Paul has to, in this letter, and he's done it several times in several different ways, reestablish his credibility with them. And so now he's going to wrap it up. That's why this letter is a little bit difficult to read. It, and then it's interspersed with some issues that he's wanting to deal with with them. So, first of all, he's going to talk to them in the first ten verses about his third visit. He's going to give them a warning. So let's look at the first ten verses. This will be the third time that I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before... And foretell as I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before, and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by by the power of God, For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? Now I pray pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong, and this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the authority which the Lord had given me for edification and not for destruction. Okay, so let's look at what he's saying here. He's kind of wrapping things up with them and wanting to deal with some issues. And he's telling them that he's coming to them. So the first thing I want you to notice is this. Once again, Paul tells them that he intends to visit them a third time. Basically, he's saying, guys, I'm coming to you a third time. I'm going to come visit you. And remember, before, even in 1 Corinthians, some of, in that letter especially, there were some who were saying, well, this Paul, who's this Paul guy? He's never going to come back here again. He doesn't care about you. Paul's saying, hey, I'm coming a third time. Now, he's going to tell, you know, rather than saying, we're going to have a sweet, wonderful fellowship when I come. You know, we're going to kibitz and, you know, have a wonderful time with each other. He tells them right after he says, I'm coming a third time, he gives them a warning of what's going to take place. He's going to give them a warning of what's going to take place. So, first of all, I want you to notice what he says in verse 1. 
he says an interesting thing right after he says, I will visit you a third time. He then says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So what's he saying here? Paul refers to the Old Testament to point out how accusations must be handled. What's he getting to here? Here's what he's getting at. He's telling them that they should have their witnesses ready to prove any accusations against them, against him or his companions. That according to the word of God, you need to have two or three witnesses to establish whatever it is that you're saying is wrong, that I'm doing. Just don't go by Joe Schmo saying that Paul did this here or whatever. You need to have two or three witnesses to establish it. So he's like laying down the groundwork for dealing with the issues. You see what he's doing here? He's been trying to, to kind of establish his credibility with him throughout this letter. And he's saying, okay, guys, when I come, we're going to settle this with these, with these accusations that are going on. And I just want to remind you that the Word of God says, of course, they would have the Old Testament. The Word of God says that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, it's something established. Something is established. And so he's wanting to basically lay the groundwork for accusation. Now, does that apply to us today? Two or three witnesses. Somebody in Paul's situation in the church. Yes, Bruce said yes. How many of you agree with Bruce? Yes. Can you just go by the word of one person? Why not? Yeah, I can have a grudge against me. It's a he said, said, she said thing. And so then it becomes then a way of establishing credibility concerning an accusation. The New Testament says very clearly that if you're going to raise an accusation against an elder, how many witnesses do you need to have? For a leader in the church, how many witnesses do you need to have? One? Yeah, two. Because truth is then established by two. You understand? By two. See, it's just not a one-time thing. Let's think of another thing. Now, there's another passage of Scripture that talks about how we're to handle offenses and so forth. That's Matthew 18. And remember the pattern of Matthew 18 is this, let's say, Gary and I are at odds, and I go to Gary, and I say to Gary, Gary, you did something to hurt me, and blah, blah, blah. And Gary could say, well, that's just your, you know, you're off your rocker, George. You're off your rocker. That's your perspective, blah, blah, blah. What's the next step of Matthew 18? I then take with me what? Yeah, someone else who's, who's, you know, who's been aware of it. And then they can come. I take with me Bruce. And Bruce says to Gary, yeah, you, George is not off his rocker. I'm seeing this too. You see how truth is established then in the credibility of what? Multiple witnesses. Now, let me ask you something. Is that how we operate sometimes? No, sadly it isn't, is it? You guys could probably, some of you have been in church a long time. Longer than, some of you, longer than I've been alive. So you probably over your years have seen situations that have arisen where people were dealt with based on one voice. And it wasn't right, was it? Was it? Now, see, that's what the Apostle's trying to tell us here. And he's saying, guys, I'm going to come. Now, think about him. He's the Apostle. But he's, and rather than him coming and saying, here, it's my way or the highway, 
Get your act together. He's saying, okay, you guys have accusations, bring them on, but be sure you do it right. Be sure you establish your accusations by what? Two witnesses. By two or three witnesses. So, he's laying the groundwork with them. He's warning them, I'm coming for a third visit, and guys, I'm coming to deal with these accusations. So then notice, again, verse 2, he's going to refer back to his last visit, where he did something, and he reminds them that on his last visit, he rebuked some of them for their sins. He rebuked some of them for their sins. So he's saying to them, guys, I'm going to come. You have your witnesses ready. But I want to remind you, the last time I was there, I had to deal with some of you because of the issues in your life. So I want you to remember what the last trip was like that I came to you. My last visit. And remember, in the, when we studied through the epistle, it wasn't a pleasant visit, remember? He, you know, when he was telling them that they need to get their act together, you know, earlier he told them they need to get their act together before he shows up, that the visit was not a pleasant experience. And so he's reminding him here in verse 2 that, you know what, he, in his last visit he had to rebuke some of them. And again in verse 2 then he says, he tells them this. He tells them that he will do the same on his next visit. He says that he will do the same on his next visit. Why? Why is, why is all of this happening? Why is this taking place here that Paul would have to get this abrupt with them? Look at verse 3. It tells you, Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. Here's what was going on. Some of the Corinthians wanted Paul to prove that he was speaking for Christ. Wow. Stop for a moment. We've already talked about this a little bit here in the last few weeks. Do you think they realize what they're asking for? Do you think they realize what they're asking for when they're saying, we want you to prove that you are speaking for Jesus? Do you think they realize that? Because I want you to think about the authority that he has. He's an apostle. He has an authority that no man ever, again, ever has had since. The only time I can think of somebody else ever having that kind of authority again is in the book of Revelation when we look forward to the future to the two witnesses. And the things that they were able to do just by the authority that was given to them to do plagues and things like that. See, the apostle had the authority. Remember, here's Peter. Remember Peter? The authority Peter has? Boy, aren't you glad we nobody in the church holds this kind of authority? Ananias and Sapphira. Here's what they did. They wanted to look good in church. Everybody around there at that time, a common practice was if I saw you had a need, and so I see that Art has a need, I'll go sell some of my property to help Art out. Give him the money. And so a lot of people were doing that. In fact, the scripture talks about in chapter 4 about a fellow by the name of Barnabas who did that kind of thing. And so Ananias and Sapphira are saying, boy, here's our chance to look good. We'll sell this piece of property. Now they keep part of it, and then they bring the rest, and they, and they, but here's what, when they bring the rest, they act like it's all. And Peter says, uh, is that all you got? 
for the thing. Oh yeah, this is what this is what we got for the property. Then he rebukes them for what? Lying to the spirit. Now, did you ever think that for a moment? What does he mean by lying to the spirit? There is he talking about lying to Peter about it, or lying? What do you think he's talking about lying to the spirit? Because he's bringing it to the church. What's he talking about? They're lying to the spirit. Well, not just lying to God because he's doing it because his huh? Well, the Holy Spirit, yes, but well, not just to yourself. Who? Yeah, the church. You got it, Bruce. The church. Because the church is what? The temple. Not just us and ourselves, but all of us collectively are one temple. The church is described as a temple, as the dwelling place of who? So when you lie to the church, you're lying actually to God. And so then he said, boom. And he died right there. And they come, guys come in, take him out. Wife comes in, same thing happens. Now, do you think it would have happened if they said, oh, we sold this piece of property and here's a portion? Do you think they would have been killed? No. No, see, that's the kind of authority the apostles had. And I've already told you, referred to you a few other times where they rebuked someone and they, what? Were struck with blindness. They had that kind of authority. I mean, you, I mean obviously... It was not something they wielded all the time because those two men, in particular Paul and Peter, would end up going and dying for their faith. But it was something that they exercised within what? The church to bring discipline. So when you hear them saying, we want you to prove that you speak for Christ, do the Corinthians really realize what they're asking for? No, they're not. Did you see, do you see what's going on there? Yeah, so here's the thing. So now I want you to notice now the example of Christ. Paul tells them that while Christ is powerful, he manifested on the cross. So what's he saying here now? He's saying, guys, you want to see power? Power is not manifested in wonderful things. Power is manifested in humility. And he shows the ultimate case of humility in what? The cross. The cross. The cross. It's interesting, you know. We were uh, my the grace group that meets on Thursday night. Someone asked a question because we were going through in that first study, lesson five of beginning in Christ. You kind of do a narration of, for those of you who've already gone through it, a narration of uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. And the question was, why, you know, in spite of all that Jesus did among them, why would they do that to him? And that raises a greater issue. Do spiritual manifestations of power, are they enough to convince people? No. Because remember, the Jews saw Jesus do all kinds of things, and they kept asking for what? Yeah, another sign. Like, how many more do you need? You know, how many more do you need? And so Paul says, look, you guys are asking for me to prove something. Let me tell you something. When Jesus came, he could manifest power. He's God. But he manifested it where? On the cross. So then now Paul talks about his condition. 
he says this about his condition. He says he stated that though he was weak, he will live in the strength of Christ. Though he is weak, he will live in the strength of Christ. Now then, now Paul kind of deviates for a moment with an exhortation in verse 5, which I find very interesting. And we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time discussing this right here. In verse 5, he gives them this exhortation. He tells them to do this. He calls them to examine whether or not they in, are indeed believers in Christ. Look with me what verse 5 says. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you know yourselves that, in, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? So he tells them that they need to examine themselves as to whether or not they're truly believers. Now, why do you think he does that? Why do you think, in light of, because he just talked about, I'm going to come, you have your witnesses ready, we're going to deal with this issue, you've been asking for a manifestation of power, Christ manifests power through humility, then all of a sudden now he says, now you guys maybe need to examine yourselves as to whether or not you are truly believers. Why do you think he says that to them? That kind of like interrupts the whole flow of thought. Okay, Ken says because it's probably because they weren't living like they were believers. Anybody else have a thought? What? Okay, Bruce said, shouldn't they know that he was speaking Christ's word if they were believers? Okay. All right, that's good, Bruce. That's really good. Anybody else want to add to what's being said here? Yeah, they should be examining their motives. Because why? How are their, what are their actions reflecting? Disbelief, Marilyn says. You know, so understand something here. Paul's, and obviously, Paul would, was there and he established this church, so he knows these individuals very well, intimately. Is it, you know something here. He's, he's telling them, he's not saying to them, okay, you guys are saved, but you just need to get your act together. He's telling them to examine their hearts concerning whether or not, what? They truly believe. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, for instance, let me, let me just stop for a moment. Can I tell that Gary's saved? I can see evidences of it. That's what you're saying, okay? But... Do I know Gary's heart? Do I know what's going on in his brain right now? I, I kind of think, George, could pick on me. Okay. All right. All right. But do I truly know the condition of his heart? Let's say Gary struggles with his salvation. Is it right for me to say, oh, no, Gary, you're saved. I was there when you walked the aisle. I was there when you gave that bapti- at your baptism when you gave the t- yeah I was there we were freezing yeah we were freezing yeah that's right you're saved man can I do that no you can't why yes only God knows his heart condition because you understand here I'm reminded constantly of do you remember Jesus's parable of the sower. Of the four different types of soil. Which was basically referring to the response of four different types of people. Four different responses of people. 
And then he goes on and shows that the first three responses were no response at all, were there? Only for the moment or but when other things came out that choked it out or whatever, but only the good soil is what brought forth the thing. See, you and I need to recognize it, but see, we have this tendency in our Baptist circles to put everything on, well, you prayed that prayer, you signed that card, you walked forward, you're saved. Can we say that? No. Why am I saying that? Because here the apostle is talking to a church that he started with people that he ministered to, preached the gospel to, that he was preaching the gospel to, he baptized, I think he says in the first letter, only maybe two of them or maybe one household. But then he says to them in this letter, guys, examine your hearts. Examine your hearts. Test yourselves as to whether or not Jesus Christ is truly in your life. Because you could deceive yourself. You could literally deceive yourself. That's why the Apostle Paul, like when you get over to Galatians or Ephesians, will say things like this. Don't let anyone deceive you that if you are practicing these things, and he goes through a whole list of stuff, that if your life is marked by the practice of these things, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what does he mean by don't let anyone deceive you? What he's talking about is don't let anyone give you a false assurance of saying, well, no, no, you're saved. You're okay. When your life is marked by what? Wrong behavior. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Does that mean that everybody who's saved doesn't sin? Everybody sins. But what's he talking about then? Yeah, or that your life is marked by habitual sin that there's no remorse for, no change for, you understand? Like, for instance, I know, here's the thing. It's not talking about habitual sin either. You can be saved and be struggling with a sin. Everybody understand? The difference between whether or not you're saved or not is your attitude about it. If you show in your heart remorse, but yet it grips you, because everybody understand addictions, because when we talk about habitual sin, we're talking about addictions, right? Usually we think of addictions in terms of alcohol or drugs. Or food. But you can be addicted to any sin. You understand what I'm saying? Because that's where you are in control. Sin has you. It has you in control. Now, your attitude about it reflects your heart attitude. And what he's talking about is the one who is out there blatantly saying, well, you know, I can do whatever I want to do. That person, I guarantee you, obviously there's not something that has transformed in their life. Because when you, what we're talking about is a view of sin. Because everybody understand, when we talk about sin, what are we talking about? Who does it hurt? Sin. Ourselves, Mabel says. Who else? It affects our relationship with God. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says. That we crucify him, what? Yeah, new, fresh. So your concept of sin, it's the concept of sin that we're talking about here. So he's telling them, guys, examine yourselves. And then notice verse 6 now, he says to them, he encourages them by pointing out that they have not disqualified themselves. So even though he says, I want you to examine yourselves, just in case you've disqualified yourselves, he points out in verse 6, he says, but I trust that you know that that we are not disqualified. He's saying, Paul encourages them by pointing out 
that they, referring to Paul and his companions, have not disqualified themselves. As much as somebody else would like to say that they had, Paul says, we haven't disqualified ourselves. We haven't disqualified ourselves. So then notice, he then now changes his tone from, you know, saying he's going to come and deal with it, to where you get to verse 5 and 6, where he talks about them examining themselves. Then he gets to verse 7 and 10, and he's going to show some concern for them. He's going to show some concern for them. Isn't that a wonderful picture of, of a father who is concerned for his children? Because the issue isn't just drop the hammer on them, get them into, get them right where they need to be, put them back where they should be. The issue is, we're going to deal with it, but I also want to show you that I love you. And so once you notice with me, verses 7 through 10, he gives a prayer for them. Look at verse 7. He says this, Now I pray that you do no evil, nor that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. So, here's what he's saying. First thing he's telling them is this. His prayer is, is that their lives would not be marked by sin. He's concerned about them that they live a life that is not marked by sin. Can I be honest with you? That's what I should concern for myself as a pastor for you or the leaders of this church, as leaders of this church, our concern for you is that your life not be marked by sin. That's what your concern should be for each and every one of us, for each, each other here, is that you be concerned that the other person who's maybe sitting next to you or across the aisle from you or across the room for you is not marked by sin. And you should be praying for each other. Do we? Let's be honest. We'll have a confession time. Do we? I just need one honest answer. Some. Okay. Do we? No. No, we don't, do we? See, can I be honest with you? When you pray for the church, what are you praying for? Are you praying for the institution? Are you praying for the building? You should, when you pray for the church, be praying for the individuals. Because that's what the church is. Hey, you know what? Can I, be honest? I, I, I know how it feels when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I was praying for you this week. Now, I'm a pastor. It's normal to pray for the pastor, right? God bless the pastor and the missionaries. Right? How would it feel to you if you knew that every week, day in, day out, somebody in the church, whether you were going through something or not, how about if you weren't going through something? How would it feel to you when everything's going okay in your life, but you still knew that there were a group of people praying for you? How would it feel? Reassuring. Okay, good, Ramona, because I was going to say, well, because I didn't hear an answer, I thought, boy, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, it would, wouldn't it? Hey, you know what? You who write cards, keep writing them. You who pray, keep praying. You who live, give a helping hand, 
Keep giving a helping hand. You don't realize how important that is to everybody else. And so Paul, he says, look, I mean, he, of all the things, if it was me, I would say, you need to examine yourself whether or not you're in the faith and just be ready because I'm coming and I've got a big paddle. And we're going to the woodshed when I get there. What does Paul do? He comes to verse 7 and he says, Now I pray to God that you do no evil. He's praying for them. He's praying for them. Man, what a response. What a response. What a response. Paul stated that he could not do, he could do nothing against God's will, but rather according to it. Paul stated that he could do nothing, verse 8, against God's will, but rather according to it. Then he comes to verse 9, and here's what he's praying for them. Here, you want to know what you can pray for each other here in this church? You want to know how to pray for each other? Here's what you pray. Paul prayed that they would be complete in their spiritual maturity. Hey, has anybody arrived? Is anybody here spiritually mature? Please stand up so we can all see what we've got to strive for. Nobody here can say that. Nobody. So Paul says, look, here's what I'm praying. I'm praying concerning your maturity. So then Paul says this. Paul wrote them because he would be stronger in person concerning these issues. So again, he's reminding them. He says, guys, I'm addressing these issues right now in a letter because if I have to address them in person, I'm going to be a little bit more stronger. Wouldn't you like to have gotten a note from your dad or mom? I'm coming home to deal with it. So you you do what you got to do to adjust your attitude or whatever because I'm coming home. Because if I have to deal with it when I get home, I'm going to be stronger than this letter. Wouldn't you love to have gotten a letter like that where you got the opportunity to adjust before mom or dad showed up? So then here he gives them the final exhortations. Look with me at verse 11 through 14. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord, the grace of Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. So here, we're going to just finish up with four quick points. Here's his final exhortation. Paul calls them to obedience and God will bless them because of it. Hey, can I be honest with you? You want God's blessing in your life? How many of you want God's blessing? All of us do, right? You know what the key to God's blessing is? Obedience. Obedience to what, George? Obedience to His Word. Not what some guy tells you is a man-made rule, but obedience to what God tells you in His Word. Then you will see the obedience. And isn't that what, hey, isn't that what experiencing God was? That we experience Him as we are what? Obedient to His Word. Then finally, He tells them to greet one another. He tells them to greet each other with a traditional kiss. Now, in that culture, and you see it sometimes when you go to Russia or some of the Eastern European countries, which has the Orthodox influence there, the Orthodox church influence, they will greet each other, men will greet each other with a kiss on the cheek. Now, in our culture, you know, 
Back off, Jack. What's the matter with you? You know what I'm saying? But that's what in that culture, that's what they did. They greeted each other with a kiss. This was a cultural custom. So no, don't say, oh, now George wants us to kiss each other as we say hello here. Now, this is a cultural custom. Verse 13, Paul brings greetings from other believers. So he says, hi, everybody. He brings them greetings from the other believers. And then finally, Paul closes with a blessing from the Trinity. Second Corinthians. Okay, let's pray.